Hello and welcome back to the Upper Bowl GM Podcast. As always, it is your host Nick Zararis and have a very special episode for you guys. Anticipation of the Penn State-Iowa game on Saturday. Went into the internet and found someone from the Iowa media to talk to to give us the Iowa perspective on the game a whole lot of fun, good conversation with someone who's on the ground covering the team, doing the legwork that lets people like me do my job, makes me better at my job when I can read quality sourced reporting. But before I get to that conversation, I do have to remind everyone to help support the show, and I will do a little bit of a college football roundup because on the episode only talked about the Penn State-Iowa game, so there's a couple other games I'm going to be keeping an eye on but that I'll talk about before I get into the conversation. But, 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 number one, support the show. Subscribe. Easiest way, subscribe to the show. Whatever podcasting platform you like to use to consume your podcasts, subscribe to the show. Number two. Interact with the show stuff on social media. Putting together a nice little graphic for this podcast so it's easier for the tweet to get engagements. All that good stuff. Lastly, if you are an Apple Podcast user because Apple controls the universe, please, please, please subscribe to the show. At the bottom of our page, once you've subscribed, go past our recent episodes. Scroll down to the bottom. There are going to be five clear purple stars Hit the one furthest to the right. That's leaving a five-star review. Underneath that is a button that says, write a review. Leave me a few words. Support your content creators. Leaving your content creators reviews is how they can show employers or advertisers their work is getting engagement. The more reviews a show has, the better a show is doing. Please, please, please leave a review. Shit helps. All right, now. Penn State-Iowa should be a throwback game. A Big Ten West game featuring a Big Ten East team. I know Penn State's from the East. I know, I know. But indulge me here. These are two slobber knocker defenses. There's going to be some hitting on Saturday. Some people are going to try and go over the middle, and someone is going to come down and lay them the fuck out. There will be at least one, if not two, targeting ejections in this game. You can pencil that in right now. These are two teams... Converging at interesting points. The Big Ten is wide open. Ohio State does not seem as dominant as it has in recent years. Penn State seems a little bit ahead of schedule based on how poorly they played last year, but Penn State's been arguably the best team in the Big Ten East. And Iowa is clearly the best team in the Big Ten West and has the second best defense in all of college football behind just Georgia, who clearly has the best. And Penn State's defense is nothing to sneeze at. Penn State's defense is top five by most metrics. I mean, Iowa is the number two defense in terms of denial of successful plays. So the other team is the second least successful of any team in college football when they try and run an offensive play against Iowa. Penn State, number four in that statistic. There ain't going to be a whole lot of points in this game. These are two quarterbacks who can be a little fumble-happy, interception-happy, and Spencer Petrus and Sean Clifford. Sean Clifford has cleaned up the turnovers. Penn State's offense has been a lot more efficient under Mike Yersich, their new offensive coordinator. And Spencer Petrus has taken care of the football. They ha- He only has one 
interception on the year, I believe. And this should be awesome. Gus Johnson on the call. Old school college football. Lots of hitting. It's going to come down to who has the ball last and whatever team makes the fewest mistakes. I know that's not a very bold or interesting take, but whoever wins this game is going to be the one who makes the fewest mistakes because neither of these coaches are going to take any chances. There's not going to be a lot of going for it on fourth and short. There's going to be a lot of early down runs into nothing because there's nowhere to go. But I cannot wait to watch this game. Other games of note, of course, Red River Rivalry, College Game Day will be there. Texas, Oklahoma from the State Fair. Oklahoma still hasn't really gotten their offense going. Texas's best player is their running back, Bijan Robinson, who very well could be the next guy. A college, excuse me, an NFL team makes the mistake of drafting in the first round to solve their aging veteran quarterback. Matt Ryan, if you want a running back, Bijan Robinson's your guy. Thumbs up. Poor Matt Ryan. Poor Falcons, bro. Arkansas Ole Miss had a little bit more juice before both of those teams got undressed this past week. Georgia-Auburn, it's not a bad game. Auburn, I don't think is particularly good, but their one loss is to Penn State. They survived. They came back against LSU. They came back against an FCS opponent. I want to see Bo Nix against that defense because if any defense can make Bo Nix look like freshman Bo Nix, it'll be the Georgia defense, which is clearly the best defense in all of college football. And the last one here I wrote down is Alabama A&M just because this is supposed to be a marquee matchup in the SEC West, and A&M is not nearly as good as it was last year. Graduating Kellen Mond, their original starter, Haynes King, breaking his ankle week one. They've had a real hard time scoring points. Their defense is not as good as it was a year ago. Jimbo maybe in the rumor mill for the LSU job if Coach O gets the can, gets shit can, which he very well might. Man, I can't wait for Saturday. I am so excited to wake up Saturday morning to watch college game day, to go right into Texas, Oklahoma, and then as soon as Texas, Oklahoma is over, Iowa, Penn State from Kinnick Stadium at night. It's going to be old school football. The faint of heart might not enjoy this game. Those who are looking for points, the Red River rivalry will have to hold you over because this game, this game is for the football nerds. I will see you guys with my special guest, Robert Reed, in one second. Here it comes. Second and 10. Clifford had it picked off. Snagged on the run and rumbling ahead. Davion Nixon makes a move. The big fella stretching his legs. Davion Nixon to the house. Sealing the deal, you would imagine, for a jubilant Iowa bunch. McSorley across the middle. Touchdown! Jawan Johnson. Penn State wins it. A walk-off touchdown. And with that, I welcome on the pregame editor for the Daily Iowan, Robert Reed. How are we doing, Robert? I'm doing great. Appreciate you having me on ahead of a big weekend of college football. It's going to be a really fun one. So before we get into the discussion, I got to ask, are you a journalism guy doing sports or a sports guy doing journalism? Because I know which side of the wall I'm on, so I got to start here. Uh, I mean, I'm probably a sports guy doing journalism, I'd say. I grew up a big sports fan, played sports. I wasn't particularly good enough to continue playing those sports, but I always enjoyed writing um, as well. So I just kind of combined those. Football, the first love or something else? 
Uh, yeah, I, I'd say probably football. I mean, I've also, I'm also a baseball fan, basketball fan, but football has been, always been the thing I've enjoyed um, watching the most and oftentimes writing about the most too. And uh, I enjoyed playing it a lot when um, I still did that. <laughs> All right. So now that we kind of got the bases rolling here, got the guys on base to set this up, what has made Iowa so consistent for so long? Because I feel like every single year of my life since I've been conscious and had a memory, it's they run the ball well, they have a good defense, and they're always hanging around. What has made them able to be consistent for so long? Well, I think when you look at consistency for a program, you just got to start right off at the top. And obviously, Kirk Ferentz, the longest tenured head coach in the FBS, he's this is his 23rd season as Iowa's head coach. And just Iowa overall as a program, I mean, they've had two head coaches since 1979, uh, with Hayden Fry being um, there for 20 years before Kirk's been here. And uh, so the, there's a lot of stability at the top. There's been a lot of stability at, you know, athletic director. Um, you look in that same time since 1979, I always had three defensive coordinators and all of them have had really uh, successful careers here. Phil Parker's leading a um, defense right now that leads the nation in turnovers forced. So um, stability really starts with that, uh, that coaching staff and how long a lot of those guys have been here. Phil Parker, who I just mentioned has been on Iowa's coaching staff since 1999 when Kirk was uh, named the head coach. So you see stability there and, you know, scheme-wise, there hasn't been uh, a whole lot of change. Uh, there's been some minor tweaks, like Iowa has been forever, at least until a couple of years ago, was a 4-3 base defense. They've gone to a couple of sub-packages in the last couple of years just to catch up with some of those spread offenses they're facing. But it's basically the same Iowa defense we've been seeing, you know, with Norm Parker in the early 2000s. Um, offensively, there's maybe been – um, some updates here and there, but it's still that same base zone running scheme that uh, Ferentz has kind of built his program around. So a lot of consistency with the coaching staff, uh, starting with the head coach and the schematically what you've seen over the past two decades has been really similar um, to what you're seeing now. And um, yeah, when you talk about consistency, Iowa always seems to you know, other than a bad year here, there always seems to be like floor of eight wins and every yeah. week you see a really great season like they're having so far this year. In terms of the Big Ten West, it seems like that co that division is kind of in its own little world compared to what the rest of college football looks like. If you had to guess why the Big Ten West is kind of still a little bit closer to what I remember college football being as a kid, where you still use the fullback, you still have power run, zone run as the base of your team, you're not primarily concerned about the quarterback. If you had to guess, what has allowed the Big Ten West to kind of stay where it is as opposed to adopting some of the crazier things we've seen in other conferences trying to stay competitive against better opponents. Yeah, I, I don't want to speak for other teams, but something I've always kind of had a theory about. So um, the the pillars, the a lot of things you just mentioned about how Iowa still plays football, that started with Hayden Fry here in the 80s and 90s and everything. And uh, Kirk Ferentz has really continued that. Well, um, Barry Alvarez was an assistant coach under Hayden Fry um, at Iowa in the 80s. Uh, when, when he took over Wisconsin, he did a lot of the same things to build his program and modeled it after Iowa. And with the success that um, you see Iowa and Wisconsin, those two programs having with this brand of football, especially into the 2000s, um, those are the programs you're going to be chasing in the West. And obviously the divisions haven't always been like this, but it 
they really are the two, I don't know, prototypical Big Ten type of programs in terms of we're going to run the ball effectively and play good defense, uh, different than maybe Ohio State, who's obviously had more success, but they play a little bit different brand of football compared to some other teams in the Big Ten. But uh, I, I don't know. That's always been interesting to me and in how, you know, Alvarez kind of built Wisconsin like Iowa um, and the success those two programs have had. It maybe leads to a Northwestern to think kind of similarly as Pat Fitzgerald builds that program. So um, you, you bring up a good point. There is a lot of ground and pound Big Ten football, especially more in the West than you see in the East. But uh, yeah, that's just a little theory on my end as to why that might be the case. Yeah, because we've seen a lot of schools adopt this to kind of play catch up. Like we see Indiana going to a more open attack. We've seen some of the other schools like Rutgers even has a more open offense just because they know they need to score enough points to hang around with the Ohio States, the Michigans, the Penn States. But in the West, we're still playing, you know, all right, we're going to punt. It's fine. We can play defense. I trust my defense. And that actually means something. I trust my defense in the Big Ten West. That's not really the case when you're playing in Ohio State and they're going to score 35, 40 points every single game. So you mentioned it there about the consistency. What do you define as a successful season at Iowa? Because every school has different expectations. They they have certain geographical limitations. You have who's in your division, what you can't control. What do you define as a successful season for Iowa? You know, it's it's been weird. And the last, you know, Iowa last went to the Big Ten championship game in 2015 when they went undefeated the regular season, won the West and everything. And since then, there's about been about three or so instances where they've been a game within going back there and winning the West again. But there's, you know, like last year, there's the slip up where Iowa led 20 or 17 nothing on Northwestern at home and ended up losing that game. Um uh, situation where they lost by two uh, against Wisconsin in 2019, couldn't get the two-point conversion to uh, to go there, and like I said, lost by two on the road. But but it, it's weird. Like 2019, they didn't win the West. They finished the regular season nine and three, had a great bowl game win against USC, and ended up with ten wins, which isn't a super common thing necessarily at Iowa. I think that Ferentz has only done it a handful of times um, in his 23 years here. So. By and large, I say the fan base would consider that a successful season, but I think to really get more um, of a consensus on what a successful season is, and even if you ask the the guys in the program, they'll say, like, oh, what are your goals for the season as a team? They're, it takes them about half a second to say, we won a Big Ten championship, and Iowa hasn't had one of those uh, as far as actually winning the conference since 2004 when they had to split it two or three ways, so it's been a while since Iowa's had a first of all, since they've been in the championship game and then beyond that, since they can actually claim a conference title. So I think that that is like the top of the standard. What's a successful season here at Iowa? I'd say that's that's a the top of the list right now. Was that the expectation for the team coming into this season based on how they wrapped up the year last year? I mean, I picked them to win the West in the preseason. I thought they were going to be a very good team, but you still got to put it together and actually play the games. So was that the expectation coming into this year, or did you kind of think it might take a little while for the offense to get going because we knew the defense was going to be pretty good? Yeah, I thought I think that was definitely, you know, up in the air for people who were, you know, projecting how the West was going to turn out. I saw a lot of people picking Wisconsin um, as well, and also fair share of people picking Iowa. So I, I'll, I'll throw it out there. This is my third year covering the team. I didn't necessarily think that uh, Iowa was going to be top three 
uh, in the country level necessarily. I did think they were going to win the West um, just because, like you said, what we knew about this defense and the special teams unit. And I anticipated Spencer Petrus at quarterback taking a little bit of a step compared to what he did last year because, I mean, he did struggle at times last year, but it almost wasn't fair because he was thrown in as a first-time starter after no offseason of real prep work and, and the pandemic and everything. So, um, yeah, I, I picked them to win the West this year, and um, it's looking like a very, very realistic role, especially with how the uh, the West isn't doing too hot aside from Iowa this year. But, um, yeah, I think coming into this year, that was a realistic expectation, but maybe uh, not to the level that they'd be doing that while also a top five team in the country. Do you think the fact that they're top five is kind of a product of some of the other things we've seen happen around the around college football where Ohio State already has a loss, Florida has a loss, or is it this is genuine or is it a little bit of both? Because I I'd think it's, it's a little bit of both. I think it's I'd agree with you there. I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, with the type of dominant performances I was um, kind of put out through the first five games, they winning 34 to six against Indiana, who at the time was number 17 in the nation. And I think Indiana's a good team. They just have a ridiculous schedule. Yeah. Um, but I, I really took advantage of them going on the road and beating a top 10 Iowa state team. And it, it was only a 10 point win, but it, it seemed a lot worse than that. And then obviously what they did just this past week against Maryland, putting up 51 points, forcing seven turnovers. So, and I mean, Maryland had the top, ranked passing attack in the big 10 and was undefeated at the time. So those are three quality wins right there. Um, and that alone is going to push you toward the top 10 ish of the polls. But, you know, I think you're right with Oregon losing with Ohio state losing with, um, you know, Notre Dame now having lost, although I was already above them, but yeah, it, it's been a weird year in terms of ranked teams losing. I want to say last year was the first time I, what was there like five or six, yeah, ranked teams or highly ranked teams lost. And so, yeah, it's probably a product of both and a really strong year when there were a lot of undefeateds at the top, like Ohio State or whatever else, whatever other team you want to throw in there. Maybe I was down a couple pegs in the poll, but I think they've dominated to the point this year and having not lost a game where they're, you know, deserving of being in that top five. All right. So if you found a person who is mostly familiar with how NFL football is played now, where shotgun offenses spread, lots of RPOs. How would you go about explaining the Iowa offense to them? Yeah, it's not that. Um, <laughs> you're going to see a lot of Spencer Petras at quarterback under center, and which was weird because he played in that type of offense in high school, a lot of air raid stuff out of the shotgun, some RPOs in there. Um, and he had to adjust to playing under center, which he's done by now, but it, it, it's just kind of interesting that transition, but a lot of, it's about as close as you can get to a profile pro style offense in college. I think you've heard, um, I think it was Peter King, um, formerly of sports illustrated a couple of years ago, who said that he hears from Iowa scout or he hears from pro scouts that they love Iowa offensive players because they know what it's like to play in a pro style offense where, um, you know, there's a lot of audibling at the line of scrimmage. It's not a, it's not necessarily an up-tempo where, you know, college look to the sideline, what sign is your coach holding up with the weird um, <laughs> actor, or whatever Oregon um, would do or, or other places who have kind of adopted that. Um, it, I was kind of built on time of possession, getting the run game going, um, 
which at times this year they have at a really good pace. Tyler Goodson a couple weeks ago had a career high 153 yards and three touchdowns out of the backfield. Um, kind of a West Coast style with intermediate routes. Um, look out for tight end Sam Laporta this week. He likes to find a spot 10 to 12 yards uh, over the middle of the field or the seam or something and usually tends to get opens. But I mean, the last couple of weeks, they've kind of opened up the downfield passing game too. And I'm trusted even Keegan Johnson, a first year player, uh, had two catches for like 92 yards a couple of weeks ago. And both of them were pretty deep bombs down the field. So uh, it, it's nothing necessarily flashy. Iowa is anything but flashy. It's a real, like I said, pro style uh, type of offense built around their zone running scheme and using Goodson effectively. But uh, Iowa likes to wear people down up front and kind of beat you with consistency again, um, knowing what they're going to do and just kind of doing it over and over again. Would you say Iowa uses training wheels with Spencer Petrus in terms of what they ask him to do because they're aware of what the limitations he has? Or do you feel like they kind of, if we need him to make a play in an important situation, they're comfortable doing that? You know, and that, that's kind of the thing, like I said, taking the training wheels off, so to speak, a couple of weeks ago, they did open the field, um, open up downfield throws a little bit more. They had against Kent State or uh, excuse me, Colorado State, they had five passing plays go for more than 20 yards, which is a season high for them at that point. And yeah, it still is. So you saw a little bit of the playbook start to open up with trusting him to throw to a guy who, you know, is out on the edge one-on-one -on -one in a cover zero situation and, you know, trusting him to have that pocket awareness and get the ball out quick and everything. So I think uh, the more and more he starts, the more and more they get comfortable with him. And, you know, Petrus has, you know, received a lot of outside criticism for his play, especially last year, not so much necessarily at the start of this year, because uh, another big thing last year, he wasn't always super careful with the, uh, the football that lost to Northwestern. I mentioned earlier, he had three interceptions in the second half. He's only turned the ball over once uh, through five games this year. Um, so it's been a lot cleaner with the ball. Um, so I think with that has kind of come a lot more trust. They know he um, isn't necessarily going to get as antsy with the football as he was last year. He knows how to get rid of it if he needs to or check it underneath to Goodson or Laporta or whoever it may be. But um, as far as do they trust him to, you know, two-minute drive or something like that at the end of the game, I'd say they do, but like we haven't had a lot of scenarios where that's needed to happen um, so far this year because Iowa's kind of been blowing teams out or, you know, at least has a comfortable lead where they don't necessarily need to rely on him. So I think they trust him whether he can lead an offense like that in that kind of stressful situation. I'm not saying he can, it's just we haven't really seen it um, need to happen. So it would be interesting if a case like that did pop up. So naturally, we got to talk about the defense. I mean, the defense has been suffocating, and it's weird because you said before how they've more or less been the same concept defensively forever now, and it always has been. And there's the conventional wisdom amongst football people that you can't scheme turnovers, but Iowa somehow, I mean, you got to be in the right position to make a play on the ball. So at the very least, you're, you're giving yourself a chance to force a turnover. Yeah, it's... Phil Parker, you hear a lot about, uh, or, you know, they get asked a lot about the turnovers and um, Kirk Ferentz the other day made a quip. It's like, it's not like we have a drill to force turnovers. Otherwise we do it a lot more. Um, but Phil Parker as a former standout defensive back himself is really unique, at least in terms of what I've heard from coaches where 
when he designs a defense in practice, he has the defensive backs lined up like to a centimeter almost. He's very geometrical with the angles and um, positioning and everything. And he's not going to stay quiet if a person isn't lined up. He's going to let you know how his defense is supposed to look. Um, so I think the defensive backs are trained um, really well in terms of where they're supposed to be, what coverage they're playing. And um, it's, it's weird to say they're trained how to be opportunistic with the football, but I mean, Riley Moss week one had two interception returns for touchdowns and um, guys on the defense just kind of said that uh, he, he's kind of a weapon with when he gets the ball in his hands, which is weird to hear. Um, about a cornerback because you figured he'd be playing wide receiver, but no, there and Kayvon Merriweather um, starting safety. We talked to him yesterday and he was asked like, well, you know, there's some criticisms against your defense that may say like, oh, some of these turnovers are luck. They can't be sustained. And he kind of said what I just said that they practice positioning and um, knowing where everyone's supposed to be so much that it can't be luck because this is what they expect to happen almost. Um, so yeah, just kind of, I, I'd say Phil Parker, definitely not a household name, but I struggle to come up with very many defensive coordinators around the nation that are better at his job than he's been, especially the past couple of years. I mean, yeah, they have the second best denial rate of successful plays on offense of anyone in football behind only Georgia, who might be the best defense we've seen in this era of college football. So definitely nothing to sneeze at. What would you say is the strong suit of this defense? Is it pass rushing? Is it run stopping? Is it coverage? Or is it some combination of we got to see who we're playing that particularly to know what we need to do? Yeah, I, I don't think there are many weak points on the defense. The strength probably is that secondary because I was in a really unique scenario where coming back this season, they had all five starters in a secondary returning, especially uh, you look at Matt Hankin starting at corner. This is his fifth year um, seeing starts at corner, which might be a first. I, he came back because of the extra year of eligibility with the COVID year and everything, but um, that experience um, – in the back end, and there's even guys who aren't starters who probably would be starters this year if they had a less uh, um, distinguished group, I guess. So they're really, really deep on the back end. So I'd say that's probably the strength. Maybe the team overall is just that secondary and its ability to force turnovers, prevent big plays, and so on. But uh, defense, like I said, is is pretty strong. The linebacking unit um, is another thing coming into the season we knew was going to be pretty strong. Jack Campbell. Uh, was the National Nagurski Player of the Week a couple years ago. He had 18 tackles against Colorado State. Um, and, I mean, he's he's forced a couple of fumbles this season. He's returned one for a touchdown. He's been breaking up passes. He's basically everywhere. And um, I actually have a story coming out this Friday. He's 6'5", which is kind of weird, an oddly tall linebacker. And a lot of people wanted to move him to, to defensive end or maybe to tight end on the offensive side or something. But he's... Uh, he's stuck with it, Shoney can go to sideline to sideline, and at this point is probably one of the better linebackers in the Big Ten. Uh, lining up next to him, Seth Benson. Um, he saw a lot more snaps last year, actually, because uh, Campbell missed the first three games last year with Mono. Um, but this year they're on the same field, they're on the field at the same time and really have complemented each other just with getting off blocks, getting the ball, and they seem to be in on every tackle together. And then um, 
I guess just one quick point on the defense coming into the season, I'd say the defensive line was probably the biggest question mark defensively for Iowa, just because of, you know, from last year's line, they lost a uh, consensus all American and Davion Nixon uh, first team, all big 10 guy with Chauncey Golston and um, a starter at defensive tackle, Jack Heflin. And all three of those guys are in the NFL playing now. Um, so it's kind of like, an unknown situation, who's going to step up. We knew Zach Van Valkenburg, who was a starter at end last year, was going to be back because he also took an extra um, COVID-related year. But um, other than that, it's not that any one player in particular has really stood out. They play about eight defensive linemen regularly and rotate them in throughout the game. It's just a real team effort. Um, Lucas Van Ness has had like four sacks in the season, and he's really stood out in a couple games. But uh, last week, John Wagner had some big hits on Tagovailoa to rush his passes. Um, and you could say that about a handful of other guys, too. So the front line may not have the star power that the linebacking core, the secondary has, but they have a lot of guys who have been rushing the passer and making an impact so far this season. So it's a good thing Texas and Oklahoma are going to play at noon because there aren't going to be a lot of points at four o'clock is what you're telling me based on what you're telling me about Iowa and what we I know about the Penn State defense. There will not be a lot of points in this game. I, I wouldn't expect a shootout. I'll tell you that. So the, naturally, there are a few things you talked about in there that bring me points. Number one, Penn State has had no ability to run the ball consistently at all this year, even against bad opponents. They weren't really able to run the ball against Ball State, against Villanova. This past week against Indiana, they forced it, but it wasn't particularly efficient. So that sets up the obvious chess match of the Penn State weapons, where you have Dotson, who's been very good, Strange, who's been very good, against a secondary that is amongst the best, if not the best in the country. And it sets up a great chess match for people like you and I to pontificate about during the week, to think about all week. Matchup-wise, this is as fun as it could possibly get because this is going to be a bowling shoe ugly game. Whoever can get a turnover, whoever can get a short field, that might be the difference in this game. Yeah, it's it's two teams that are, like you said, it's going to be interesting to see how they play that chess match and how it um goes together because like you said it's really two very talented defenses both defenses are probably better than both offenses but Penn State does have a little bit more firepower in the skill positions and Kirk Ferentz kind of alluded to that uh, the other day it took him about half a second when a reporter was asking like well what scares you the most about Penn State's offense and he said Dotson like without a blink of an eye just because um, obviously the game was a it wasn't one-sided because Penn State did fight a little bit in the second half of last year's matchup, but Iowa won it comfortably, but Dotson still yeah. had uh, a real nice day, close to 140 yards and a touchdown, if I remember correctly. And um, Iowa's defense is really, especially the secondary, they talk basically every week when they're playing Indiana and explosive offense or last week against Tagovailoa in Maryland. Um, they know they're going to get beat on a couple of plays, especially when you got, have a guy like Dotson out there, but they really stress not letting that big play beat them. And they've only been caught on, I'd say, one or two big quote-unquote plays this year, one of them against Iowa State at the end of the first half that turned out not to matter all that much, um, and one against Kent State, I think. But not letting a guy like Dotson get behind the defense is really what Iowa's been pushing. And then talking to some guys in the front seven, they want – they've done a really good job this year facing some mobile 
quarterbacks like Michael Penix, uh, Brock Purdy, Tagovailoa last week of not letting them really use their legs as a weapon because um, in years past, it's kind of been a theme where when a mobile quarterback goes against the Iowa defense, that could be a way to disrupt them a little bit, to get outside the pocket, make a play. Um, that's maybe a little bit unscripted that could catch the defense off guard since they're so good at, you know, when things are going on script, it's kind of tough to beat the Iowa defense. But, uh, you know, talking to uh, Logan Lee, defensive tackle, they want to keep Clifford in the pocket, collapse the pocket a little bit and make him uneasy on some of his throws and don't let him get comfortable. So um, that's kind of what the Iowa defense is aiming for this week. And uh, I'm sure things won't necessarily go as planned, but I would expect a, uh, a defensive battle this weekend. So of their game so far this year, who would you say gave Iowa the hardest time? Would you say it was Colorado State because of how close that score was? Or would you say it was Iowa State because that was kind of earlier in the year where they were kind of still feeling each other out as teams? Yeah, oddly enough, the Colorado State game was the game that felt the closest. Like Iowa, once the game got going against Iowa State, it felt like it was a two-score game pretty comfortably for most of the second half, and there was never really a feeling that Iowa was going to let it slip away. Indiana was out of hand. Maryland was out of hand. Kent State was pretty out of hand. So um, Colorado State leading at halftime, um, it took, you know, the Iowa defense made some opportunistic plays in the second half, forcing a fumble at Colorado State's six-yard line and then scoring to tie it up and then kind of controlling the game from there. Um, and it wasn't necessarily even – things that uh, Colorado State did particularly well. That's a harsh way of saying it. It's just, you know, the one turnover Spencer Peters does have this year. He tried to force a tunnel screen after it had kind of been disrupted a little bit and was picked off and ran back close to Iowa's end zone and Colorado State not Colorado State scored not long after. So uh, it was just kind of some of those little mistakes. Ivory Kelly Martin, the number two running back, had a couple of fumbles. So some un-Iowa things kind of happened in that game that kept it close. And I mean, Colorado State played a good game, especially on the road against a, uh, at the time, number five opponent. But yeah, that was the game, oddly enough, that Iowa struggled the most with this year. But, um, and they didn't necessarily look great against Kent State the week, the week before. It was a 30-7 to Iowa win, but um, it took a little bit for Iowa to get going. They were really... Um, I'd say the turning point in that game in the second half, I don't remember what Iowa was leading at the time, but it was closer than the final score indicated. And Colorado State was at, or Kent State was at Iowa's one yard line and um, Jack Campbell made a hit that forced a fumble and Iowa recovered in the end zone and went on a scoring drive to kind of put that game away. So um, oddly enough, like I said, the Kent State and the Colorado State games were almost more interesting from a score standpoint to those power five opponents. So I don't know if it's uh, maybe looking ahead on the schedule, which every team says they don't, but maybe that creeps in a little bit. But yeah, those are the games, especially Colorado State that were closest for whatever reason. 
it's very interesting because the biggest difference between Penn State this year and last year is just Clifford's ability to take care of the football. He hasn't turned the ball over. I think he has one interception on the year on a Hail Mary at the end of a half, something like that. But other than that, he's been pretty good. And that was the biggest problem in the game last year for Penn State against Iowa was all the turnovers. And that's kind of how their season spiraled out of control. So this is a really good measuring stick game for Penn State to see if their offense is actually good or if they've just kind of taken advantage of the opponents they've had because they've been more skilled than the defenses they've gone against. Yeah, and it kind of works both ways. I find it interesting because that that loss to Iowa last year was the last time Penn State's Penn State lost on a winning yeah. streak since then. And Iowa started out 0-2 last year and have since swept the table, won the final uh, six games last year or 5-0 and to start this year. So we're, we're seeing two teams who are really, you know, finding their momentum and obviously because they're on the top five. But and like you said, Clifford kind of cleaning up turnovers, same with Petrus. So, um, yeah, it, they're honestly, these teams are kind of meeting at the perfect time as far as a fan standpoint to see a really good competitive game. Historically speaking, what would a, what would winning this game mean for Iowa, just landscape-wise? Because I know every single time we watch game day, you watch a broadcast, it's this game means so much to this program because of X. What would something like this mean for Iowa as a football program? You know, I don't want to be dramatic because I see people <laughs> on Twitter be like, this is a program defining or the next step forward for the program. And I don't know if one game necessarily does that, especially in the regular season, but it's a great opportunity for Iowa at home in a top five matchup. Um, some of the recruiting analysts uh, in the local market have said that this is the single most talented recruiting uh a group of recruits that are going to be attending an Iowa home game that they've ever seen. All these recruits from Iowa and out of state who are interested in becoming Hawkeyes are, you know, wanting to be on hand to see this game and to see the atmosphere. And there's going to be multiple in and out of state five-star recruits um, on those sidelines. So it's a really good opportunity thinking just about the next five or so years to kind of set yourself up. And when you're on this big stage, which I mean, Iowa was on a big stage, on week two against Iowa State with game day there and, um, you know, guys like Reese Davis and Kirk Herbstreet on the call. But this is kind of a different situation. You're at home. You're in Iowa City against a top five opponent, the kind of dream matchup if you're growing up and wanting to play football um, at the college level. So I, I just think as far as that, um, it's an opportunity to kind of flex your program a little bit. And then um, as far as meaning for this season's team, I think – um, in 2015, when Iowa swept the table in the regular season, there was always those analysts every couple of weeks who were like, well, I was not for real. They haven't played anybody, this or that. And I mean, maybe at a point I was strong, but schedule wasn't the strongest that year, but Iowa, and you're kind of seeing a little bit of it this year, because Indiana's maybe not as good as we thought they were. Iowa state's not ranked anymore. Um, but beating Penn state at home in an undefeated top five matchup, I think that kind of shows like okay, I was for real. There's no, there's no real like things you can nitpick anymore um, if you do win a game like this. So obviously, even if Iowa wins, they're only 6-0. There's still half a season to play, but it's a really good indicator of what the team is capable of and firmly puts them in that college football playoff discussion. So James Franklin always talks about this, that Penn State is a good program, but they want to be elite. 
What's holding Iowa State back from making that same kind of leap? Because these are two teams in that same kind of tier where they both know we don't have the talent of an Ohio State. So for us to win a Big Ten any given year, we're going to need things to go our way. What would you say is holding Iowa back from being consistently in that mix where all we need is to get to Indianapolis and we can win the Big Ten? Yeah, I don't know. You... I was really known as a developmental program and that it brings in two and three star recruits or even some walk-ons and turns them into, you know, NFL players. We had, uh, this is Iowa's America needs farmers game uh, to raise awareness for farming around the country. And as the honorary captain for this year's matchup, they brought in uh, former Hawkeye and former Baltimore Raven, Marshall Yonda, who oh, yeah. was a junior college guy and, um, uh, transferred in for a senior year and junior and senior years uh, at Iowa. And that's just kind of the embodiment of, uh, of Iowa as a developmental program. And I guess finding these kind of overlooked guys or underrated guys and then putting them on the field, developing them and you know, showing like, Hey, we can, we can compete for these things too. Even if we don't have a um, five-star, those, those don't happen very often. AJ yeah. Vanessa was the last one. And um that was even a really good get for Iowa. So uh, four stars were actually pretty rare too. Like I said, it's mostly three-ish star guys. So I think just, you know, if you want to say what's holding Iowa back, well, they're never going to get the Ohio State type of recruiting class on a consistent basis. Even Penn State, you know, next yeah. year's class is ranked toward the top, if not at the top of the, the recruiting ranking. So Iowa – it's not to say that I was necessarily behind because they do like the guys they get and they kind of fit the Iowa mentality of the brand of football they want to play. But, you know, you're working with something a little bit different there. Yeah. Um, and, and like I, I, going back to one of my other points earlier, like what's holding Iowa back? Well, they've been close in, you know, a handful of years. And there was a stretch where it just seemed like Iowa couldn't win a close game uh, for a little bit in like the 2018 to nine ish, 19 ish, uh, stretch. And there's been some painful close losses to Penn state. Yeah. Um, from the Iowa perspective, thinking about McSorley's last second, uh, touchdown pass in 2017, 2019, last time Penn state was here was a, uh, close Penn state win. And, um, you know, if, if Iowa wins a game like that, that kind of elevates the stature of the season a little bit. So, um, this is kind of, uh, you know, a, a good embodiment of that. Win a game like this, if you're Iowa this weekend, and that uh, that kind of takes the next step. You're not being held back anymore. You're showing, okay, we, maybe we are the best team in the Big Ten. It's going to be a very fun game. I cannot wait. If you had to describe Kinnick Stadium to someone who's never been, how would you describe it? Because different crowds have different types of energies. There's chaotic. There's wall of sound. There's distracting how would you describe the energy well it's it's weird it seems like if you don't know much about iowa you don't necessarily expect to go into kinnick stadium or iowa city and get a really good crowd and for different coaches i've talked to or heard their answers or read their answers or whatever they always seem to put kinnick stadium as toward the top of the list of toughest places to play in the big 10 and um, that goes for top ranked teams. I mean, I was one, four of its last five games against top five teams in Kinnick with the one exception being against, uh, uh, Penn state in 2017. Um, so yeah, I, I, 
it's kind of a mix of both. They just renovated the north end zone uh, a couple of years ago to make it, I don't know, a little bit more taller and it kind of helps keep the noise within the stadium. So there is that very noisy uh, element, especially this year. I think after last year with empty stands, the crowd's a little bit rowdier. And even when I was off and saw on the field, they're going crazy. And Petrus has to quiet it down a little bit. But um, it's very loud. You'll hear the IOWA chant frequently. Um, Iowa fans get very into the game. Like th this is what Iowans have. There aren't professional sports in the state. Um, there is another power five school in Iowa state, but um, I don't know. Iowa, Iowa football seems to be like Iowa's version of a professional sport. They pack close to 70,000 people in a stadium. Um, everyone's rowdy. This week's going to be the stripe game where, you know, the sections are marked off by black and gold. So it's been sold out for close to a month. Um, the Fox pregame show is going to be there. There's, there's just a lot of hype about this game. Um, the crowd's going to be very rowdy, uh, maybe even a little bit chaotic, like you said. And, um, you know, it, once you hear back in black start playing in Iowa, it shows on the video board that I was walking out of the tunnel. Um, it, it gets it gets pretty wild in there, and it stays that way basically till the end of the game. That's one of the things that college football does better than the NFL. And as I've gotten older, I've gotten more of an appreciation for college football because of just the pure happiness the sport can bring people. Whereas even when your NFL team wins, you're never really that happy because you're like six days away from impending doom again. And college is just it's a little bit different. It's a little bit different. So specifically about this game. What needs to go right for Iowa to hang around in this game? What can they not afford to have happen at any point in this game? That'll be a real problem. I'd say the top priority is, again, kind of what it's been the past couple of years. Be careful with the football offensively. Don't put your defense in super stressful situations um, deep in the red zone or something like that when they don't have to be. Because um, Iowa's defense is great. We've been over that, but not even – that unit can, you know, stop an offense like Penn State's from scoring at will if Petrus has a fumble in the red zone or throws a bad pick or something. Um, so I think that's the that's the top priority. Don't take care of the football, play mistake-free football, which Petrus is kind of his motto at this point. Um, and I don't want to say Iowa relies on its defense, but it relies on its defense and special teams to. Um, make some plays, get the team some, some momentum. Like last week, uh, forcing seven Maryland turnovers, setting Iowa's offense up in great field position. And Iowa's offense looked really good. They just happened to always be at Maryland's like 35-yard line to start a drive, which certainly helps when you're trying to score. So, um, yeah, I, I just say Iowa offensively don't do anything to make things harder on your defense. The one thing that I will be curious to see, because you mentioned it before, that they like to rotate in a lot of guys, is that pretty much every single time Penn State has gotten a first down this year, they've gone no huddle immediately and kept the tempo up, not let the defense substitute. Or in the occasions where they have gone to substitute, you catch them with 12 guys on the field, 13 guys on the field because people are running off. I am curious to see how these two things mesh because – these are different things. Penn State's running up-tempo. They're running a very different offense from what they've run in over the last few years. Like, even the Joe Moorhead offense wasn't this fast, this reliant on get the ball out as quickly as possible, that kind of thing. So, very curious to see how that matchup plays out. 
Yeah, and I think Kent State, oddly enough, kind of helps prepare for that because Kent State yeah. likes to run a play like every 15 to 16 seconds. They're like up-tempo, up-tempo. It was kind of amazing to see them get plays off so quickly. Um, and, you know, at points that did affect Iowa's defensive line rotation, maybe they need to um, – the same four guys need to stay out there for a drive and then the next four, the next drive, something like that. Um, but, yeah, I think just from a preparation standpoint because as – Ference has said you it's really tough to prepare for tempo against the scout team as hard as they try. Um, you don't really get a feel for it until you're in the game. So maybe that in-game experience against Kent State will help a little bit in terms of just the tempo of the game at that point. In terms of game management, what kind of coach is Kirk Ferentz? I know, but I need to include that as part of the podcast. If you had to explain, is he going to be aggressive in situations where it calls for it? Is he going to be content to trust his defense and special teams? What kind of game management can you expect on Saturday? Yeah, it's – he loves the field position game. Field position is very important for Iowa football. They've got a great punter in Tory Taylor who's – kind of at this point built a specialty on downing punts inside the 10 yard line. So playing that field position game and playing clean football um, is again, kind of pillars of the Kirk Ferentz program. And um, that's not to say he won't take risks per se, especially in the last couple of years. Um, if fourth and short near midfield or basically anywhere, um, look out for a quarterback sneak or a fullback yep. dive or something. They love going forward on fourth and down. They will pull out a fake field goal every once in a while. They had a fake punt that was really oddly timed against Penn State that didn't work, but it was fun nonetheless, I guess. So um, Kirk's not the most aggressive guy out there. Um, he he is all about field position, like I said, and kind of trusting his defense to keep the field position on their side and just waiting for the offense to put that drive together with a short field. So I, I guess that's how I'd uh, I'd sum that up. All right, so the last question I have for you, what's the energy been like around the program going into this game this week? Because for some schools, you know, you get caught up in the moment, that kind of thing. What's it been like this week? Because this is, this might be the biggest game of the college football regular season, depending on what happens down the road. Yeah, and I mean, for Iowa, it's the biggest regular season game the program's had since I'd say 1985, the last time there was yeah. a top five matchup inside Kinnick Stadium. So uh, I think it helped a little bit that they were kind of in another marquee game against Iowa State cause, just because, you know, it's already an in-state rivalry, but it was a top 10 matchup and game day and, you know, all those kind of outside distractions. So maybe that helps a little bit with this week. But, you know, you get the same, I don't know, the players we talked to this week kind of balanced like, well, this is the type of game you dream of playing in and we're excited, but also like, it's still one game, you know, we're not treating it any differently, blocking out the outside noise, uh, all that stuff. So, you know, everyone's excited for this game. You, you know, they know what's at stake and um, maybe even the extent to what's being talked about with this game. But, um, you know, they're keeping that, you know, one game at a time, one week at a time, just going to prepare like normal sort of attitude going into this one. So looking at the rest of their schedule, I mean, aside from a showdown against Nebraska, who kind of seems frisky, this is, this is, you can afford one loss and probably still win the West, but you take care of this, you go to that Big Ten title game, big th I, you get why it's such a big moment is what I'm teasing at here. Oh, definitely. And like you said, 
Iowa could lose this game and still probably pretty comfortably win the West. I mean, just from a standings um, standpoint, when you look at conference play, four teams already have two losses in the Big Ten. Uh, the two that don't are Minnesota and Purdue, and neither of those two teams seem particularly good, um, I guess is the way I'd put that. But um, yeah, it, it, if they win this game, and I, I don't want to go out there predicting games as far ahead of time because even if they're not great teams like Purdue and Northwestern always seem to give Iowa a good game um, but yeah there aren't a little I was also kind of looking over the schedule and there aren't a lot of games that make you think well maybe I was in trouble here um, so after that after this week that is so yeah if Iowa beats Penn State some special things could be brewing. Even if they lose to Penn State, they see it still seem in pretty commanding lead of the uh, the Big Ten West, at least. Hey, I would sign up for two of these. If you told me they were going to play now and then again in December in Indianapolis, I would sign up for that. That would be awesome. Gus Johnson, twice, calling this. That would be <laughs> yeah, amazing. Yeah, bring it on. Bring it on. All right, Robert, before I get you out of here, plug your work. You do good work. I went through all of your clips in preparation for this. Yeah, well, like like I said, this is my uh, third year on the Iowa football beat for the Daily Iowa, second year leading our football coverage. So I work with a team of three other reporters, and two of us will be in the press box on uh, on Saturday. So yeah, check me out dailyan.com or on Twitter at Robert Reed underscore. Ah, let me rephrase that at Robert underscore Reed thirty four, and stay up to date with all your uh, Hawkeye football coverage. It's a it's a fun time, especially this year with the top five teams. So appreciate you uh, having me on. Absolutely. S student media has the best people. I could have gone to a number, student media people work their asses off. So uh, as someone who's a couple of years out of school, student media people work harder than full-time media people because you got to go to class too. So you guys always come on the show. Thank you so much for coming by. I know this is kind of short notice. Yeah, no problem. And school stuff you mentioned, I got out of class before this. I got to finish up stories for the night and then write an essay that's due at midnight. So hopefully my timing's pretty good on that. But uh, yeah, like I said, I appreciate you having me on. It was fun to talk about a really big game. I'll see you around, man. This was a lot of fun.